We're reading this morning from Nehemiah chapters 7 and 8. Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts, and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the peoples to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it. These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Rehemiah, Nehemani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpareth, Bigvi, Neam, Benaiah. The number of the men of the people of Israel. And we will now go to chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive. It were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Melchijah, Nashem, Hashbadiah, Zechariah, and Meshullam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, and as he opened it, the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Paliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, 
and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn and weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And don't be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and make great rejoicing because they understood the words that were declared to them. Thank you, Trish. I, uh, I'm really enjoying this journey through Nehemiah. And this, uh, this passage today is kind of a, an emotional one in a lot of ways. Uh, it's, it's, it's finished. The wall is now finished. 52 days of intense work by so many people, and the wall is actually done. And uh, it, it's almost overwhelming that they could do so much work in such a short period of time. But it's, a, it's an amazing picture of what it looks like when a, a whole group of people <laughs> work in unity together in a common task, a common calling, and a common vision. And by doing so in, a hundred, in 52 days, they accomplished what they couldn't even really begin in 150 years. So it's, it's an amazing picture, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, some, of the, some of the immediate aftermath of having finished that project. But let's, let's start with a prayer. Well, Lord, thank you as, as we gather here. I just pray for us as we listen to these words. I pray for the impact that they'll have on us. I pray for where we are in our hearts as we come before your word. And, and just that we would begin to even now cast our minds forward into this passage and what it was like for those people to come before the word of the Lord for the first time, many of them I think in their whole lives, and what it meant to them and the impact it had upon them, Lord. So as we come, may, may we just be open to the moving of your spirit in our hearts and minds as we soak in some of your word here. In Christ's name, amen. Now, one of the things that strikes me very much about this passage uh, is that even though the wall is complete, right, even though that project is done, the story's not over, right? Have you noticed that? Uh, God's plans and purposes for these people, even in the context of this book of the Bible, are not yet complete. God's got more rebuilding to do than just that wall. And if we look at the rest of the book of Nehemiah, I mean, take a look at it. If you've got the Bible in your head, look how much is still left. We're actually only about halfway through the book of Nehemiah. There's still a lot to go, but the wall's done. And it's important uh, that, that we do not equate fulfilling God's purposes with a single project, even if it's a huge project, even if it's a project that we focused on for a long, long, long time and finally got it done. That doesn't mean we're done, 
<laughs> not in any kind of an ultimate sense anyways. That would almost be like assuming that the tremendous labor of giving birth to a child, and that once that's done, that it's over. <laughs> it's not over. It's actually in so many ways just beginning, right? Even though the tremendous big effort is behind you, there's still more to do. So here's the truth that I want to draw out here. The truth is that we're never done. I don't know, is, is that too much to say? That I think we're never done. As long as life goes, as long as this present age continues and we're living in it, we're not done yet. God's not done yet. And, and that's the truth for Nehemiah and the people of Israel here. They've accomplished the big, huge feat through God. They've come over this great hurdle and, and they've reached a, a huge new milestone and all that, but it's not over. God's purposes for them are not now complete and done. Um, the amazing completion of the wall simply means that they're ready for the next step, <laughs> that they're ready to move on to what God's greater purpose is for. And then we've said from the beginning of this book that this, this book of Nehemiah is not just about the rebuilding of a city, but that the rebuilding of that city of Jerusalem is actually very symbolic of sort of the broken down spiritual condition of these people that really was what needed to be rebuilt. That was actually more important than just the walls. The wall and the unity of coming together to build that wall might have just been sort of the first step that God wanted to bring them through to set them up to deal with some of those more significant internal spiritual issues that they had as a community that still needed to be repaired. And in preparation for moving forward onto that part of the project, Nehemiah makes some appointments, right? At the beginning of chapter 7, he makes three appointments uh, for groups of people. He appoints gatekeepers. He appoints sinner, singers. And he appoints Levites. Um, he appoints people to these three important offices or roles that are to sort of take care of the spiritual side of the life of the city now that the city has been built. And it's just like, you know, when they were building the walls, they needed bricklayers. They needed uh, stone dressers. They needed, at some point, guards, right, to protect the builders. They needed all of those things to complete that physical part of the job. Now, in a similar way, some spiritual roles need to be fulfilled in order to build and to battle in that spiritual realm of the lives that God wants to complete with these people. So gatekeepers, singers, and Levites for the city, for the community of people uh, that God has called to live in this newly built city. And these three groups of people, <laughs> gatekeepers, singers, and Levites, are, are to watch over and to take care of you know, the spiritual areas of the life of that community. And they are essential to keeping it sort of a healthy and growing and godly community, a spiritually strong community. Gatekeepers, they do things like watch over the city, right? They stand guard to keep guard over the community, keeping it safe and secure from attack. So that's what they do in a physical sense, but there's very much a, a spiritual sense in which gatekeepers act as well, too, over a congregation of people. And that's what we're going to focus on. Singers, they were called to lead the people in, their, their, in worship. Their job was to make sure that, that God was always at the heart of the life of this community and that the community was experiencing 
expressing things like gratefulness and joy and praise to God in a right and appropriate way. And then the Levites, of course, their job was to teach and to instruct the people the word of God and to generally lead the people in faith uh, throughout their lives. And, you know, in very, very much so, all three of those offices are still in some ways filled in, in our life as a body here today too. I mean, we too as a church need gatekeepers. We, we also need to have gatekeepers. In the, now, not physical gatekeepers, of course. Not ones that guard the physical property here or anything like that. We don't have that kind of a wall to guard. But we do need spiritual gatekeepers who watch and who keep uh, watch over the things that come in and the things that go out from us, the influences that would come in amongst us. We need spiritual gatekeepers who will watch out for the activity of well, our enemy, frankly. And, and I, I want to say pretty boldly up front that we have an enemy, a force that would want to stop us from enjoying the life that God has blessed us with, the goodness that God has blessed us with. There is, in that sense, a battle going on. Uh, gatekeepers who will be alert and to see what that enemy of ours is up to, who will understand how our enemy is scheming and plotting his attacks against us and who will be ready to warn us and expose those attacks and and be ready to pray against those sorts of advances against us. So as I've been thinking about this over this past week, I've been reviewing just some of the ways that I've seen spiritual attacks take place upon the church that I've been involved in over the past decades. Uh, And there have been some very incredibly direct attacks on us as a church over the years. And and I'm talking about my own history with church in the the past number of years. There is one point, so I used to work with a church plant uh, for years, and, and we... We didn't have a building like this. We, we met in rented facilities. And we met in the, uh, uh, a, a community hall for, for years. And one day we came to this community hall. We had keys to it. We unlocked it. We were getting in there. And there was this big note taped to the door of our community hall. Early in the morning, we would get there like at 8 o'clock in the morning to start setting up. And uh, we open up the note, and there is this large pentagram drawn on that piece of paper. And underneath the pentagram, there was a version of the Lord's Prayer, only it was, in, it was written upside down, and uh, it, the whole prayer was exactly opposite of what the Lord's Prayer is. It started off by saying, Our Father who art in hell. And it went on to curse us. All the way through that prayer, and then beyond that, just name all kinds of curses against the church that meets in this building. <laughs> There's enemy out there. There, there are these kinds of attacks that would want to, 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 to discourage us, dissuade us, scare us, and, and, and if they could, do some level of harm to us. I remember one time also I got a phone call left on our, our voice message system for, of our church that, uh, that was a person who'd claimed to murdered a girl in the park last night. And the person was telling us all this stuff on this message, and then halfway through it, their voice just changed unbelievably and it went off into this tirade of uh, curses again against us as a church and it was chilling to even hear that we, we brought that recording to the police because there was a claim of a murder that took place the police th- they actually said to us you wouldn't believe how much stuff we actually get like this that is sort of occultish like this 
and uh, they investigated it. They couldn't find anything that was uh, untoward, so it, it kind of went nowhere. Um, I, on one occasion, um, had death threats made against my children. Against my children. Uh, and the same person who made death threats against us also told us that, that they were actively uh, cursing all of the pastors in our community. <laughs> Those kinds of things happen. It's bizarre, it's almost hard to believe, but they happen. And they hit you pretty hard when they happen to you directly. And it just feels painful and, and, and broken. Um, there's those kinds of, of, of attacks, but there's also even just a, sort of a much more subtle version of attack that comes from this really uh, relative voice of the world out there that wants to say, how can you possibly know what the word and the will of God is? That wants to say, everything is relative and none of it really matters. That's just your opinion. That it's not really truth, it's just your opinion of truth or your idea of truth. And it's, it's the kind of voice that, that says we should all be allowed to live just according to our own terms, to our own sort of measures of what truth is, to be the masters of our own lives and sort of you know, work towards our own ends and desires. And it's all just sort of personal, relative, and up to each of us. Uh, and and it's, it's some opinions like that that we need to watch out for. Because after all, I mean, even, even, even the Garden of Eden needed a gatekeeper to keep its safe. <laughs> Yeah, right? When, when, when Adam and Eve left the garden, they was actually posted a, a, an angel there to guard the place, to keep those kinds of attitudes out of it, because after all, that was the original sin of mankind, to think that we can usurp God, to think that we can take over that role of determining what is right and what is wrong for ourselves, each one of us for ourselves. It was the very thing that started the whole ball rolling in the first place. And I come to realize that not only do we need, get, I need a gatekeeper. I need gatekeepers. I need the word of God to gatekeep for me too because I can stumble and fall into that in subtle ways as well too. We need to be careful about stuff like that and aware of stuff like that. And the truth is, this whole idea about gatekeeping and guarding is the truth is that anytime you have something that's valuable, you need to guard it. I think that's the ultimate principle behind it. If you've got something valuable, you need to guard it. And we should realize that we have something of incredibly great value that we as humanity need, that I as a personal individual need. We, we have this incredible truth of, of grace and forgiveness and love from God, this gospel of forgiveness and restoration to who we were really created to be. That's what we've got, and it's incredibly valuable. And there are forces out there that would want to shut it down. We have the Spirit of God. We have freedom and hope in Christ and righteousness in Christ. We have a whole new life in Christ. And we need to guard those things because they're valuable, because they're worth protecting and preserving. And our enemy would like to rob us of those things. And we need to guard and protect them, not so that we can have them for ourselves. We actually need to guard and protect them just so that we can share them with our world as reality and truth. That's why we need to guard and protect them. Not, not to hide them away just for me, like I would my money in my wallet, but that, so that I could actually open up that wallet, you know, figuratively speaking, and throw it out to everybody. 
so that everybody can receive this and have an opportunity to hear and, and, and benefit from this. But there are forces out there that would want to stop that from happening. That's who we're guarding it from. And certainly the theme of, of that kind of guarding in the New Testament is it's all over the New Testament. To guard what we have in Christ. Jesus himself says, guard yourselves, he says. He says, guard yourselves against, for on one occasion, he says, the yeast of the Pharisees. The teaching of the Pharisees. The legalism of the Pharisees. It'll kill what you've got. Guard against that. Right? Guard against this, this controlling, dominating, legalistic, oppressive spirit of religion, which is probably just as dangerous as the opposite spirit of the evil one. It can be dangerous as well, the spirit of religion that might come amongst us and want to threaten and, and, and beat down that, that beauty and freedom and grace of the gospel and make it conditional and, and, and make it dependent upon how we perform. We're also called to guard against what Jesus calls false teachers and, and false Christs, if you will, false messiahs who would want to usurp his role. We're supposed to guard against all kinds of, Paul says, greed, desires, passions. We're told to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ and to dwell on him, to focus our hearts and our minds on, on whatever is, Paul says, true and noble, right and pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. <laughs> guard your hearts by dwelling on those things. So he's even telling us how to guard ourselves. We're to guard our hearts and our minds by dwelling on these things and not by dwelling on the things that would be contrary to them, right? That is a form of gatekeeping as well. Gatekeeping of our very minds. We all need to be on guard is the truth of it. We all need to be gatekeepers in some sense to some degree. In fact, in verse 3, it, it even says that, 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 that also along with the appointed guard, gatekeepers, the residents were appointed to gatekeep also, to guard near their own houses, right? Near their own houses. And that makes sense, you see. That was where we need to have particular interest and take particular levels of responsibility for gatekeeping and guarding is right there at the doors of our own houses. I hope we understand how important and significant that is that we guard each of us personally right there, we too have a level of responsibility to be on guard, to guard what comes in and out of our own homes, right? To, to be careful and to guard what goes in and comes out of our own hearts and minds, right? We, we, we hook our, our houses up to internets and cables and, and, and all sorts of things come in and out. We need to guard some of that stuff because it's not all good. It's not all healthy. It's not all those things that Paul was talking about. Some of it's very counter to that, and we need to guard against that. Set up structures of guard against that. We need to guard our attitudes in our minds, and our passions in our hearts that could carry us away. We need to be on guard for stuff like that. We need to be, as a church, on guard. And in the end, we need the help of the Spirit of God to properly play that role. Now the second appointment that Nehemiah makes was this role of singers, which is interesting to me. I mean, he's, he's going to make three appointments. Only three. And one of them is singers. It's like, <laughs> for some of us, you might go, well, that's kind of curious that that makes the list, the top three. But it does. He appoints singers. 
And again, these are worshipers. They lead the people in worship. They ensure that the worship of God was, was, was a big part of the life of that new community that is going to grow in that newly built city of Jerusalem. And the fact that Nehemiah only appoints three tells you what incredible value he sees in this role. And I can only believe that worship was so important to Nehemiah because he recognized that worship is so important to God. That's, that's why it's there. That's why it's so important to, to Nehemiah. You see, it wasn't because they were just big, huge music fans. That's not why it was. That's not why it made the top three. It's not, it's not because that culture of singing was so important to them that it had to be one of their top three. That wasn't it. It wasn't for their enjoyment. It wasn't for their entertainment that Nehemiah was so quick to appoint singers as soon as the wall was complete. In fact, it wasn't about them at all. <laughs> That's the truth of it. It wasn't about them at all. It was about God. It was all about praising and worshiping and being a people who praise and worship and celebrate and pour out their hearts toward God. And collectively, one of the most profound ways that we can do that is with song and worship. There's so much in that that brings us together. Even to sing together brings people together. It, it can unite them. It harmonizes them. It, it brings them sort of onto the same level as we cooperatively bring our voices together. There's so much significance in that. And it's so important that we too understand that that is why we worship. That that is why we spend sometimes, you know, probably roughly half of the time in our morning services, close to it, is spent in that kind of worship. Because God likes it. I think that's the simplest answer. Because God likes it and He's worthy of it. It's all about Him and about celebrating Him, praising and lifting Him up. We don't do it because we like music so much. We don't do it for our entertainment or enjoyment. It really isn't about us. It's really all about Him. We don't sing for each other. We don't sing to each other. The leaders who lead us in worship, um, they lead us into worship. They don't perform for us. We all perform for God. That's what it is. That's who we're performing for. And, and, and those who lead us, they take that role that, that sometimes I think difficult, challenging, uh, sometimes it can be even walking on a bit of a razor's edge role of humbly leading and pointing not to themselves, but upwards in that direction to God. And Andrew and Cal, thank you guys for doing that. I know you step into a dangerous place. I know you do. Uh, you step up to lead a congregation in worship, you might as well draw a spiritual bullseye on yourself because uh, there's a lot that can go sideways, both out there and even inside of us. And it's true for preaching too. Same thing. It is a risky business to be a part of because we have to do it right. We have to do it right. And I mean in the right spirit. <laughs> not, not necessarily right technically. I think that's less important to God. The right spirit is what matters so much more to Him. And Nehemiah recognizes that this community's highest calling was to worship and to praise and to honor and to glorify their Creator who made not only their lives possible, but this whole community possible. We need to recognize the same thing. We do. We need to worship as a community. We need to. We must 
We must. We need strong, true, genuine worship that's not about us or for us, but about and for our God. Now, here's the incredible thing, that as we do that, we'll enjoy it too. That, that's, it's not that that's bad. <laughs> we will enjoy that's, that's a nice, a really nice fringe benefit is that we just sort of enjoy it greatly when we do that too. It's a fringe benefit. Uh, it's not the focus of it, but it is a nice fringe benefit because we're now doing what we were created to do. That's why it can be so joyful. And we need to keep that perspective pretty aware in us. Third thing that Nehemiah points on, on this first sort of day, the celebration of the, the dedication of the wall, is he points Levites. Levites. Now, Levites were one of the 12 tribes of Israel. I know a lot of you know that. They were one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And certain members of that tribe were trained and, and appointed to act as spiritual leaders and teachers of the people. And they did everything from teach the word of God, to run the temple, to lead the various acts of worship within that temple and among the community, uh, the ceremonies and the celebrations. Um, all those things that the community, community took part in, the Levites were the ones who sort of organized it, coordinated it, and led it. And in today's world, today's church, I, I guess that the parallel to the Levites would very much be like our pastors and elders, and probably all the leaders of a church who take official sort of positions or roles of leadership. That would, that would be what the Levites would have done. They're the people among us, actually. And here's the thing I think we need to remember. They're the people among us who have the greatest amount of responsibility for the community before God. They're the ones that are also most answerable to God on behalf of the community. And their greatest responsibility is the spiritual welfare and spiritual understanding of the community. Um, so from there, I'm going to jump into chapter 8. Okay, So we've got the appointment of those roles. That's sort of what they did. That was important to them. And now we jump into chapter 8. And this scene at the beginning of chapter 8 with the walls completed and, and the, the vital appointments of the gatekeeper singers and Levites made, now Nehemiah gathers all the people of the city in the square by the water gate. Okay, that's where it's taking place. In the square by the water gate. And there everyone gathers. And it says, as one man. So picture that. They, they gather as one man. In other words, what he's saying is they gather as a unit. They gather as a body, right? As a tightly unified community. That's what he means. That's what he's getting at. With still this community that is still of one mind, that is still of one purpose and of one vision. And that, you know, building the wall sort of galvanized that oneness amongst them. And now there they are, gathered, still in that sense of oneness. Even though the work of the wall is done, they're still in that sense of oneness. And then, at the people's request, right? and this is interesting, because it seems to me like they're hungry for this, because at the people's request, you know, they go to Ezra, and they ask that the priest... Would, would bring out the Word of God for them and bring out the Scriptures for them, the books of the Law of Moses, and read it to them publicly. This public 
reading of the Word of God is what they're asking for, almost it seems craving for. Now you've got to understand that this is very special because, this is so very special because not everyone back then had their own copy of a Bible like we do. It wasn't like that. What Nehemiah was holding in his hands on that day that he read from was, was a copy, a handwritten copy of the first five books of the Bible written on scrolls of animal skins, right? Animal skins. And, and these first five books of the Bible written on these bulky animal skin scrolls probably filled a good-sized trunk or chest. Just one of them, right? Just one copy of it. And they were fairly rare. They were quite rare back then. Not, again, not everyone had a, copy, a coffee table version of, of the Scriptures lying on their coffee table gathering dust. <laughs> These were precious. These were rare. There's not a whole lot of them out there, especially at this period in Israel's history. I mean, the city was destroyed like 150 some odd years ago, and a lot was destroyed. Stuff like this was destroyed too. And then many of them were hauled off into exile for 150 years. More. You know, they probably rarely heard much at all from the Scriptures back then. The truth was, for many of those people, that day gathered in that square by the water gate, who were born and raised in exile, many of them, this was probably the first time they had actually extensively heard the Word of God read to any significant degree. That's what they were listening to. Quite possibly in their whole lives. This might have been the first real significant reading of Scripture that they'd witnessed. They probably heard stories from it, certainly. They may have even heard bits and pieces of it here and there, but now to hear the whole thing read from dawn until mid, or from dusk until midday, for the first time, here they were, actually listening to the very thing being read out loud straight from the scrolls themselves from daybreak until noon. Wow. And they're just absorbing it. They're soaking in it. The Word of God. And the Word of God, it obviously touched them. Right? I mean, it plunged deep into their being like that proverbial double-edged sword that the writer of Hebrews talks about cutting deep into soul and sunder and separating truth from error within them. And on top of all that, they were listening to it in the city of Jerusalem. <laughs> right? That's the other big thing that's happening. Don't forget that. There they stand in the holy city that they thought maybe would never be rebuilt. And there they are in it with it freshly finished, dramatically restored in those miraculous 52 days by the hand and the grace of God. As a people there they were with a new dignity, a new hope, a new sense of receiving the promises of God. I think that at this moment, it was at this moment that that promise of Jeremiah was, was coming to reality in their hearts and minds. Finally, his promises were coming true. And we're told that the ears of the people were attentive. They were attentive. They were attentive to the reading of the book of the law. 
I bet they were virtually spellbound, you know? This was a dream come true for them. And then in chapter 6, verse 8, we read how Ezra began to bless the Lord. So he's concluded, I assume, and he begins to bless the Lord, the great God. You know, and he almost seemingly breaks out into this blessing of the Lord, this worship, this praising of God and worship. And it says then that all the people, you know, lifted up their hands and they responded and they said, Amen, Amen. They bow down, you know, heads to the ground and they worship the Lord with their faces to the ground, right? That's what happens. That's how they respond. And then Ezra sends out all those newly appointed Levites. He sends them out among the people. It's like, here's a good good chance to get started. (laughs) Here's a great chance to get started in your role, in your job. Here's a perfect opportunity for you to learn how to do this. Go minister to them. Go explain to them. They're ripe. They're ready. This is going to be easy. Go and touch them and just bring the blessing of God to them. Explain to them the word of God where they might not know what it means. Make it clear for all of them so that everyone could understand it. Oh, man. This must have been just an incredibly dramatic and emotional time. I, you know, these are some of those things that you wish historically could have been captured on film. <laughs> this would have been incredible to have watched this. With all these people, with all they had gone through in this newly built city, and all that it took to get there, to hear and to understand, many of them for the first time, the words, the will, the laws of God. And not surprisingly, the people become emotional. Of course they do. Of course they do. They become emotional and begin to cry as they hear and they understand the Word of God. Some, I suppose, are weeping just out of sheer emotion for the moment. Others, no doubt, are weeping out of some level of conviction as they heard God's law read and understood it and were cut to the heart for how far they had strayed from it as a people, as God's people. And then this whole scene kind of wraps up with a really interesting response from Jeremiah um, with the people weeping in response and in emotion. Nehemiah, Nehemiah stops them from their weeping. And he stops them from going into even deeper mourning and grief. Because I, th- I think he sort of sees them heading there. And it's not that mourning and grief are bad. They're not bad at all. They can be very, very, very appropriate. And in fact, the, the whole book of Nehemiah starts with Nehemiah himself breaking down before God in mourning and grief for the sins of Israel, for the sins of his family, and even indeed for his own sins. It starts there. But here on this occasion, Nehemiah stops the people from breaking down deeper into that grief and sorrow because, because you see, now, now is the time to move on from that. Now is when God wants to see those people move beyond the sorrow into restoration. You see, while God certainly does move his people into mourning and grief when there is reason and cause for mourning and grief, what he does not do is leave his people there. (laughs) He doesn't leave them there. He takes them through it so that he can raise them out of it. That's his objective. 
And when there is repentance and expression of grief for sin, what God does then is move people beyond that and into forgiveness, beyond that into restoration and into renewal, beyond that grief into blessing and joy. (laughs) Blessing and joy. Powerful, restorative joy. That's the kind of God he is. He wants to get us there. And Nehemiah says to them, do not grieve. Right? We're, we're past that now. God has brought us past that. He says, do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's where that famous verse is found. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. You see, now was the time for being raised up. Now was the time for renewal and for strength. And the joy of the Lord is to be the source of that renewal and strength. Psalm 30 says, though there's pain in the night, joy comes in the morning. God brings it in the morning. He brings us through the pain and into the joy. It's a new day for these people. A new strength of joy has dawned upon them. And Nehemiah wants them to enjoy it. (laughs) So he leads them into that. So Nehemiah and the Levites send the people off at the end of this session into a season and a time of celebration, growing in strength and in the joy of the renewal in the Lord. He even sends them off with a mission to go and and drink and eat good food, right? Enjoy it. Uh, And for those who have no food prepared, share with them. Like, Make sure everybody gets to experience the goodness. Be generous. Be giving and sharing here. And all the people, they go away and they eat and they drink. And they, and they send various portions of food to, to others to help them be able to celebrate too because now they understand the words of God, the goodness of God, the grace of God, the love of God, right? So here we are as a church going through times of rebuilding, sometimes going through times of challenge. And, and you know, these things come and go. These are ebbs and flows in the life of a body. They'll always be coming in and out of, this, of, of sort of the fabric of who we are as a church together. Where are you in the course of this? Where are you in that ebb and flow? Do you still have some grieving that you need to go through? Some levels of repentance, some levels of recognizing what God's Word says and where and how it might or might not line up with your life? Well, you can go through that. In fact, you can go safely through that. In fact, you can go into that with confidence because I know you can know because Scripture tells us and God promises us where He's going to take us in that. He's going to take us through that and out of that and beyond that and above that. That's where He's leading us to. Always, always, that's where He's leading us to. No matter where we faltered or stumbled or fallen or struggled, He wants to lead us. He doesn't want to just ignore it and go, okay, let's forget about that, skip over it, and and get on with something else. He wants us to go through it and, and go right into it and out of it and restore us from it. He'll even take those broken pieces and utilize them, just like He took the broken bricks and stones of the wall and rebuilt the new wall out of it. He wants to build those things into us too and grow us beyond that and into the goodness and the promises that He has for us. Amen? And we're just kind of going through a lot of this in this season season as a church as as we head into a new future 
and a new hope that God has for us. It's one of the reasons why we want to study this book in particular, to take us all the way through that and into the good things and the future that he has prepared for us, that he even prepared for us from before the foundations of the earth, we're told, for each of us individually, for us collectively. And let's, let's let God take us through it. Let's let him take us into whatever we need to that's difficult and through it and into the joy of the Lord that is our strength. Amen? So we've... Uh, the communion elements are over here, uh, so I'm going to just lead us into... And, and if you're at home uh, and you may be prepared for this, you maybe haven't, but uh, we're, we're doing communion and uh, uh, I'm just going to lead us and pray us into the communion and then I'm going to uh, go get the elements and, and make sure everyone here is served. You guys can get your elements at home and make sure you're ready. But uh, let's step into this. This is our... This is a little bit of our feast. That's what was, was, was occurring to me today, that as Nehemiah sends these people off on a feast to enjoy the joy of the Lord, which is their strength, here's our feast. Christ is our feast. Christ is our sustenance, if you will. Christ is our nourishment. Christ is the thing that makes us healthy and whole and strong. He's, he, he's who we eat from, in a sense. He's who we drink from and draw our nourishment from. He is our all in all. And, and, and this picture of communion and ingesting communion elements is almost like taking Christ into us, if you can picture it that way in a symbolic kind of way, of, of ingesting Christ into us that he might reside into us. He's already there. When we receive him, he's already there. But it's, it's a reenactment of that. It's a reenactment of both what he did for us and how we responded to him. So that's what we're reenacting, what he did for us in giving his life sacrificing his body and shedding his blood for us and we received him into us. That's what we're reenacting in this act of communion. So I'm going to send you off to get your elements. We're going to get our elements and I'll be right back here and we'll partake of them together. Okay, so maybe just hold them until then and then we'll partake of them together. Our act of remembering. We remember what you did for us. We remember your grace to us. Remember the sacrifice you made for us. Remember how you humbled yourself to come. Uh, God in human flesh, incarnate, to, to save us, to rescue us, to pay for the price, the, the horrific price of sin for us, which is death, and to heal us and to give us life eternal. By his wounds we are healed, <laughs> Scripture says. There is no forgiveness of sin, not really, without the shedding of blood, to actually pay the price for it. That's how we're truly released and forgiven. Lord, we remember that. We recognize that. We celebrate that. So, Lord, we take the bread as you gave it to your disciples, and you gave it to them, you broke it, and you said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So, Lord, we remember you came in human body and that you died for our sins. Amen. Take and receive all of it. And then we remember that after supper you took the cup and you gave it to your disciples and you said, this is the new covenant which is in my blood. The new arrangement, the new deal, the new testament which is in his blood that uh, he sheds his blood for our sins. That's the new covenant. That's the new deal. And that he does it in an absolutely perfect way. Truly, truly paying for our debt so that we might be set free. Do this. 
drink ye all of it in remembrance and in gratitude of him. Amen. God bless you. Lord, you are good. You are gracious. You are our healer, our redeemer, our Lord, our God. And Lord, I pray that you just uh, touch our hearts like you touched the hearts of those people back in Nehemiah's day. Lord, help us to understand the value that we have in your word, in your testament. The gift that it is, and the power that it has to direct us into restoration and into truth. To direct us back to you. It's really, it's really a big book roadmap back to you. Lord, help us to understand that and to just gratefully <laughs> receive that and dwell in it. Help us to dwell in it, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we thank you. We bless you. Amen.